welcome to MonarchCast. I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And today we're talking about one of the English monarchy's greatest mysteries, the princes in the tower. On tonight's episode of Dateline. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what's that um what's that podcast? The My uh, Favorite Murder? Yeah, My Favorite Murder. This is the My Favorite Murder episode of <laughs> MonarchCast. I'll do my best. Um, Georgia, tonight we're talking about the princes in the tower. Uh, I say that as like a fan, so not making fun of them. Just yeah, yeah. That's what we're it talking is, about. It is, but today. it is essentially this cold case, if you will, in English royal history, where their fate is fairly, fairly well known, but the hows and the whys and the wins and the whos are unsolved. Um, and, and I but just want to say that I just watched, in anticipation of doing this episode on Netflix, this BBC production called Secrets of the Tower of London. This this was not mentioned. Interesting. I was thinking like, oh, sweet. I'll get some like juicy details, like see what these modern day beef eaters think of all of this. No, no, they didn't even mention it. What what were their secrets? Like, here's the row of houses that we all live in. Pretty and... much. Yeah, it was yeah. more like the secrets of the day-to-day functioning of the tower. I mean, it was actually kind of fascinating because the drawbridge on the tower bridge that goes up and down was built during the reign of Queen Victoria and hasn't been modernized since. I thought that was kind of cool. But yes, they did not mention the princes in the tower. So yeah, the like the history of the tower and like the secrets of how they how it functions, like how you get chosen to be a beef eater and all of this stuff. And like the fact that they live on the property, that's all very cool and interesting. But I would not put that in like top 10 secrets of the tower. (laughs) I did learn that the correct term for a beef eater is the yeomans of the warden or yeomans of the ward or something like that. I think they're yeomans of the guard. Oh, okay. I I thought they were saying ward. Guard makes more sense. Um, (laughs) But that was pretty much the highlight of what I learned. Well, you know what, Claire? You can can learn that for sure in a couple weeks. Yes, because we're going to London. We are. I I might try to find some kind of reference to the princes in the tower because i think when this airs we will actually when be this there airs, i think we'll be or en route leaving that yeah. day yeah <laughs> for so, london so maybe i'll try to find something juicy maybe i will try to find information i will take it upon myself to search the grounds Maybe Anne Boleyn left something behind. A yeoman of the ward (laughs) is going to catch me. (laughs) Um, Okay, so before we get into it, though, um, I did have one tiny little royal oops from last time, and it's more of like a clarification because we talked about this a lot in our last episode, and um, this is another theme that we'll see today, but everybody has the same name. And sometimes it it's gets pretty a little... much like the theme of this podcast. Yeah, is that everybody has the same name. So sometimes it gets a little confusing about who we're actually referring to. So I was speaking in our last episode on Henry the Sixth a lot about Edmund Beaufort, who is the Duke of Somerset, and we also talked about John Beaufort, who was Margaret Beaufort's father. And Margaret Beaufort will come into today's story. And he was also Duke of Somerset. So there was like a little bit of confusion because you had mentioned, didn't Margaret Beaufort's father commit suicide? 
and that's true he did so basically there was the duke of somerset margaret beaufort's father who did fight in normandy or command troops and he did a really terrible job so he did return to england in disgrace and take his own life and um because he didn't have a living son the duke of somerset dukedom reverted back to the crown then a short time later his brother edmund beaufort was created the duke of somerset by henry the sixth so that's why he's called the first duke of somerset because Because he's the new first duke so when you're created you start over at number one that solves our issue when we talked about the duke of lancaster about how john of gaunt was the first duke of lancaster but how's that possible because blanche of lancaster's father was the duke of lancaster that is why so I just wanted to clarify that when we're talking about the Duke of Somerset in regards to Henry VI, we are talking about Edmund Beaufort um, and uh, to a lesser extent at the end of that reign, it was his son, I believe, or his young, younger brother because um, he, he did die as well and was replaced by a newer, younger Duke of Somerset, but that was an inherited title. So Margaret Beaufort's father was also the Duke of Somerset. So that's confusing, right? There's like all kinds of people. They all have the same last name. And as we know, there were a million Beauforts running around. So that didn't, that didn't help matters. But I hope that clarifies it a little bit. It does. So like if we were to extrapolate this for modern times, I think when Charles dies... The Duke of Clarence title dies with him. And then if somebody else is created Duke of Clarence, then they would become the Duke of Clarence, the first Duke. Charles is the Duke of Cornwall. Uh, that one. Yes. Thank you. I'm thinking of um, When house. Charles dies. Yes, Duke of Cornwall. When Charles takes the, th- that works a little differently. When Charles takes the throne of England, he will become the Duke of Lancaster. And William will become Prince of Wales, Duke of Cornwall. So maybe that title is a better. That title, see, you have the titles. We talked about this a little bit in our episode about titles, is you have titles that pass through hereditary means, and then you have the titles that are tied to a certain rank and position. So the monarch is always the Duke of Lancaster, the Prince of Wales is always the Duke of Cornwall. Um, traditionally speaking, the second son of the monarch is always the Duke of York, although Andrew, if still living, when Charles takes the throne, means that Harry will not become Duke of York automatically. Do you think he ever would? Well, I think it will revert to the crown when Andrew dies because the dukedom of York, when, when it's conferred, I believe when it was conferred to Andrew, it was conferred that if he had a son they would have inherited although don't quote me on that but um because he doesn't have a son it will revert to the crown when he dies and it'll probably go to louis and honestly they should take it now i don't understand we're gonna this is a nice segue into gossip um i don't understand why andrew is still showing up to royal events escorting the queen yeah i mean come on people like just hide him away for a few months like she's clearly decided to 
back him up. I mean, it's it's like worse for her if she doesn't, I think. So I don't know. In her mind, it's probably like outward stiff upper lip, like face the firing squad, buck him up, support him. And who knows what's going on in private, but like she clearly is putting public support behind him, which would be more understandable if she gave public support to other people, but that's well neither here nor there. <laughs> well, so that's interesting. That also brings us to the gossip that I actually did want to cover. Andrew was kind of an accidental outburst. Um, so this past weekend was all of the Remembrance Day events, which is the um, British and Canadian version of Veterans Day that we celebrate in the United States. They're all celebrated at the same time. Well, they're celebrating the armistice. Yes, I was just going to say, I think they yeah. all grew out of the armistice day. But they have traditionally a lot of events that they attend. And I just wanted to talk about some of the commentary that I saw. And this gets more less about the British press and more about, um, I think, online culture and how people react to this kind of stuff. Because we've talked a lot about how the press is singling out Megan and the British papers are trying to keep this feud story going. But I think one of the reasons is because the public is certainly stoking this. So I read um, an article and it was just talking about um, the attendance at the Royal Albert Music Hall um, variety show, whatever it is that they attend every year. They attend some kind of theater event and they all go. So it's you have the queen sitting in the middle of the front row and then you had... William and Kate on one side of her and Charles and Camilla on the other side of her. And then I saw a lot of commentary about how Harry and Meghan were shoved in the back because they're being punished. But I just want to take a second to point out. I read I want to I read those same headlines last year. Yes. Yes. But what I wanted to take a second to point out is that I think a lot of people are looking for things now because this narrative has been pushed so much and I think if you look at the picture I I actually thought it made perfect sense because what you had was the queen sitting with the two heirs in the front row and then the right behind her were her children Edward and Anne and then to the left of um Edward was uh and Sophie was I assume some Maybe it was like the Duke of Gloucester or something. It wasn't the Duke of Gloucester, but, you know, someone tangentially related. And then to the right of Anne and her husband was Harry and Meghan. And I'm looking at this, like thinking about it like a seating chart. Where else would you put them? That's where they go. That's where they go. And I know I'm saying I read these exact same articles last year after Trooping the Color when everybody was like, oh, they hid Harry and Meghan away so they wouldn't be a distraction because they were in the second row. And it's like, that's where they go. Harry yeah. is not an heir to the crown. Yeah. He is second tier. And like, I think that's what's really interesting is like when you and I look at this stuff, we're like, oh, we sort of talk about this all the time and we understand the hierarchy and the protocol and the positioning of everything. But I think a lot of people are mostly just looking at it and thinking, well, Harry and Meghan are my favorites. How come they're not in the front row? And I think that that's just one of the things that's kind of feeding the beast here. Um, Because then I saw the next day a headline about how at the actual Remembrance Day ceremony, 
wreath laying that they do um kate and camilla and the queen were all on one balcony and sophie and megan and Anne's husband were on the other balcony and once again megan was pushed to the side and look there's a time and a place for this narrative we've talked about this a lot megan has certainly been maliciously maligned in the british press but the queen i do not think the queen is making any kind of statement here um, that's where she stood last year yeah if you were if you were looking for that dirt you know look elsewhere maybe um, the only thing I thought when I saw those photos especially the ones of like the queen and Camilla and Kate I was like are they wearing the same outfits as last year like seriously the photos don't change it's the three of them and then everybody else because yep. they're the three most powerful women in the English monarchy like that's yeah. just how it is. And Megan doesn't, she's not, like, they don't even have their own royal household. Like, they're under Buckingham Palace for a reason. Yeah. So I just thought that was, it was almost kind of refreshing to read a headline about that as opposed to Well, it to also something. just shows, like, anyone writing that headline is just kind of showing their own ignorance. Because, like, yeah. if you're a journalist writing that headline, it means you didn't do your research. If you're a gossip person writing that headline it shows that you also didn't do your research and you're lazy because it's a lazy story it is a lazy story but it's low-hanging fruit so they took advantage but it's like unripe fruit like there's no there there <laughs> no there's not so anyway i just wanted to comment on that because those were the dominant stories that i saw all right well let's let's get to the gossip of the 17th century shall we the 17th century? The 16th century. I think, right? 15th. 15th? Okay. Yep. You got there. Oh, wow. There. We went back a yeah. little farther than I was thinking. You know why? Because I'm reading a book that's a couple centuries after yeah. this. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so we are in the 15th century. And where we left off last time was Edward IV had killed Henry VI and taken his kingdom once again. So we left with the Yorks firmly on the throne um the lancastrians have been stamped out and at the time everyone probably thought that was it for the wars of the roses um and interestingly enough the book that i started out reading about this by allison weir ends there <laughs> so, because i think technically no no it's not the end of the wars of the roses but i think she maybe considers it to be the end of the Wars of the Roses. Um, the second well, book that I picked like up... two parts, right? Sure. Um, and it's funny because the second book that I picked up... And let me find the title really quickly for you. They're both called Wars of the Roses. But the second one is called The Fall of the Plantagenets and the Rise of the Tudors. And it's by Dan Jones. So... Um, that one picked up conveniently where my last book left off. So uh, both titles, Wars of the Roses. So we're still in the Wars of the Roses. But, um, mm. you know, at the time you couldn't blame the Yorks if they thought the wars were over. So to Edward's credit, he was determined to be a good king. You know, we've had this civil war going on for some time. He's committed a regicide whether or not by his own hand he certainly ordered henry's death and um he's determined to smooth things over and get england back on the right foot so to do this he needs to shore up support starting at home with his own brothers so if we remember the duke of clarence who is george 
had allied against Edward with the Earl of Warwick. And um, Warwick is dead. Edward defeated them. And George is still alive and has been welcomed back into the family fold. Um, Unfortunately for George, it seems to me from everything I read, he just at this point, maybe he was always this way, but he was really suffering from mental illness at this time. He was very paranoid. Um, Most of this stems from the death of his wife, Isabel Neville, who was Warwick's daughter. Um, She died most likely of childbed fever or maybe consumption, but he was convinced that she had been murdered by a servant and he had the poor woman hanged without a trial. Uh, So this was bad enough, but Edward was like, well, he killed a servant, so maybe I'll let it go. Um, But he continued to deteriorate and eventually he gets swept up in another plot against Edward and he's accused of being involved. I'm not sure if he was actually involved, but he tried to vehemently defend the perpetrators and that was kind of it for Edward. Edward had Mm -hmm. no choice to to get rid of him, so he arrests him for treason and drowns him in a vat of Malmsey wine. And some of this is going to overlap with our episode on Elizabeth Woodville. I think that that's inevitable but um you know we're talking about the same players here yeah this story is was pretty much the coda to her episode so this is an expansion yes and there are some points where i'm just going to point you towards that episode um for context and to fill in the blanks um so we've got the duke of clarence downfall and in contrast we have his younger brother richard uh, the Duke of Gloucester, and he is a paragon of loyalty to his brother, Edward. So he supported Edward in his quest to invade France because once Edward is secure back on his throne, he decides to engage in that uh, traditional invasion. Um, actually, it was interesting to read. Edward basically did like a half-hearted invasion and did it just enough so that he convinced the King of France to pay him a ransom to go home it's almost like they're like okay i'm king now to france to france (laughs) we go um he you know he declared himself king of france and all that and but he you know he raised a bunch of money to go fight a war and then they just kind of turned around and went home and uh richard was there right by his side um he supported edward when he had to kill george Um, Although, to be fair, this was probably more likely due to the fact that their wives were rival heiresses. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. So Edward's two brothers, Richard and George, were married to sisters. So George was married to Isabel Neville and Richard was married to Anne Neville. And the two of them, because their father died under treasonous circumstances the crown didn't pass where it normally would have the not the crown the um fortune that he had which if you remember he was the richest man in england it didn't pass to his younger brother as it should have or to his daughters richard and george were fighting over the warwick lands and they wanted edward to give them to both of them and edward was kind of hedging his bets because it was a lot of power and money and he didn't really want either of his brothers to have him and certainly not George but he couldn't give it to Richard if he didn't give it to George so Richard absolutely supported George's downfall 
And he's rewarded. He gets wealth, power, and prestige, namely full control of the north of England. So he didn't get all of the Warwick inheritance, but he got a big chunk of it. Interestingly, at this time, Edward also attempts to reconcile with Henry Tudor. So we hadn't really talked about Henry Tudor yet, but if you remember, he's Margaret Beaufort's son with Edmund Tudor, who was the half-brother of Henry VI. And at some point in our story... While this war is raging between these rival houses, Henry has kind of gone into hiding because when Henry VI was killed, he's the last person alive with any sort of Lancastrian claim. So he's no fool. His mother got him out of England and he's kind of biding his time until he can come back. And Edward knows this. So Edward is determined to bring him back into the fold to welcome him back to court, but on Edward's terms. So he's negotiating the return of the title Earl of Richmond to Henry because it was his father's title that had been seized. And they seem to have been in the beginning of um, negotiating a marriage alliance of some kind because there's correspondence and records of Margaret Beaufort and Edward talking about the fact that their kids are too closely related to get married without a dispensation from the Pope. Hmm. Now, remember, Edward had a lot of daughters, so it's not clear who he may have had in mind. But if you want to bring Henry Tudor back to court and you want him to be loyal to you, the best thing to do is to marry him to one of your many daughters. So it seems as though this was contemplated. Um, I mean, that's what they had been doing with the daughters of France this whole time right which was part of the problem <laughs> right so all this is to say that Edward is turning into a capable and savvy ruler but then he dies in 1483 and just as things were starting <sighs> to get stable you, Claire penicillin yeah they're not really sure what killed him so could have been appendicitis could have been chronic kidney failure that just manifested at the end um could have been a stroke could have been it could have been a lot of different things um he certainly was not living he was not <laughs> you know a, an example of clean living towards the end so it could it could have been anything but it doesn't matter i mean he died in his mid 40s very unexpectedly and this should have been okay because he did leave two sons behind as well as several daughters um, his sons were Richard, Duke of York, and his eldest son, Edward, the Prince of Wales. So Edward was 12 at the time. So we're not exactly talking about a baby here. So everything should have been okay, except remember, not only have we had York against Lancaster, but inside the House of York, we've had York against Woodville. Mm-hmm. So see our episode on Elizabeth Woodville if you want more background on this. But the long story short is that her family was huge. She did what any good sibling daughter would do and set her family up for success and rubbed a lot of people the wrong way in the process. So this led to a lot of enmity amongst the nobles because when Edward the Fourth died, his son Edward is residing at Ludlow Castle. This is the seat of the Prince of Wales. His uncle, Anthony Woodville, also at this time known as Earl Rivers, because remember his father has been murdered, was his tutor, guardian, companion, 
all of the above. He's basically his like right hand man in taking care of Edward in Wales. So they're very, very close. By all accounts, Anthony was a well educated, knightly, cultured, just all around great man. But unfortunately for the Yorkists, he's also a Woodville. So Edward Yeah, I mean, I think much like many of the stories we tell, never underestimate the nobles to let their pettiness get in the way of functioning government and good decisions. Right. So it's actually interesting. So Edward knew all of this was the case. Um, Like on his deathbed, he's having Lord Hastings and um, one of of the Woodvilles might have been elizabeth's son richard gray i'm not sure which one but he's like on his deathbed like you have to put the past behind you be friends for the future you know and they're all just kind of going along with it because the king is dying but none of these people have any intention of letting bygones be bygones and edward's plan was to divide up the government so he's going to put richard his brother in charge as lord protector which puts richard in charge of the government but he was going to leave rivers in charge of the household and the king's person so kind of like managing the person of the king and all of his personal business this is a lot like the arrangement that we saw for henry the sixth when he was a baby there was um, a council of people in charge of ruling england not just one person and the idea is that you don't have one person tempted to seize power you don't but i'm also struck by edward's short like short view backwards because the thing that didn't work with Henry VI was that because of this arrangement, the nobles were all fighting over the power. So he, it works like, yes, you don't want to give one person. Yeah, exactly. You don't want to give one person absolute power, but also this idea that you're splitting it up amongst these very petty power hungry people. You're also giving them permission to, play tug of war basically with the king exactly because the king's only 12 so he's like old enough to know his own mind but young enough to be easily influenced and that's everybody wants to be the person most likely to influence him so everybody says okay this is what edward wanted but screw that we're not going along with the plan so instead it's decided that young edward is going to take the throne and rule there won't be a regency He's 12. He's old enough. <laughs> Great idea. So guess who this favors? This favors the Woodvilles. And this gives Richard a lot less power. So the Woodvilles can influence the king, but they don't have to claim any power. But it keeps Richard from having the power as Lord Protector. Right. So this doesn't sit well with Richard. And here's what happened. So Rivers and Edward, the young king at this point, he, he's he's been declared king. Richard has sworn allegiance to him. He's now known as Edward V, although he was never formally crowned. Spoiler alert. Um, so Anthony, I'm just going to call him Rivers because that's his seat. Um, Rivers and Edward, along with um, Elizabeth Woodville's son, Richard Gray, set out for London with the king. And Richard... Duke of York, uh, Duke of Gloucester at this point persuaded them to detour slightly to meet up with him and the Duke of Buckingham on the way. So the idea is that Buckingham and Gloucester are going to present themselves to the king, swear allegiance, and then they will all head to London. So like the whole team is assembled. They'll head into London as a unified group. So Rivers and Edward 
agree and they meet up and um, they leave the king in an inn and all of these nobles meet for dinner, have a great time, they get up early to head back to the king, collect him and go back to London. They get halfway there and Richard and Buckingham turn to Rivers and Richard Gray and say, just kidding, you're under arrest for treason. We're gonna go get Edward. You you stay here. You're done. I thought Edward was with Rivers. They, I mean, he was with him in the area, but they had left him at the inn where they were staying. Okay. And they had gone to meet Richard for dinner. It was just a friendly so then dinner. Why? I guess I don't understand. What's the charge that they arrest them on? And then also, how is the king powerless? Like I know he's like physically powerless, but he's still the king. So so here's here's what happened. Like there are witnesses here to see his word being ignored. I would assume. Yeah. So Richard, when Richard and Buckingham arrest Rivers and Richard Gray, they have you know, all of their men with them. So they're able to overpower them physically. And then they go back to the king and they tell him, I'm only here to protect you. I've, I've arrested Anthony Rivers. The king is smart enough to see through this, but Richard also arrests everyone there with Edward and arrests them all for treason. He just says for treason. He doesn't say what they did. He just says for treason. And the king's like, okay, I see the game. Like, he's old enough. He's smart enough. He's educated enough to know what's going on. But he has no choice but to play along because he's also a 12-year-old boy. So he's like, all right, fine. So they go back to London. And Richard says, we're setting your coronation for June 22nd. Um, And meanwhile, I'm going to be the Lord Protector. So... He's effectively cut the Woodvilles out of government. And at this point, he goes to like the king's counselors and he tries to have Rivers and Gray and all their companions condemned for treason and beheaded. But they won't go along with it because they said exactly what you just said. On what charge? Like, what have they done? They haven't done anything. So this is really frustrating for Richard. And he's starting to realize, okay, I don't really have as much power as I thought I did. And pretty soon we're going to crown this 12-year-old boy and everybody wants him to rule on his own. And even if he doesn't, eventually he's going to come of age and he might take revenge on me. So he's thinking, oh crap, I need to hold on to my power. So what he does is, I mentioned Lord Hastings before, but there's Lord Hastings, there's this gentleman named Rotherham and Morton. And they're all supposed to meet up with Richard. And Richard springs a trap on them. So basically they show up and he starts screaming that they've tried to kill him. All the guards show up and like they kill Hastings and they arrest the other men. And Richard's like, oh my gosh, can you can you believe what just happened? Like he's he's very cunning. Then he sends the Archbishop of Canterbury to the Queen, to Elizabeth Woodville, and says, we need your second son, Richard, to come with us because we put Edward in the tower to await his coronation, and it'd be great if his brother could come keep him company. And oh, by the way, he's also instrumental to the coronation. We can't have this ceremony without his younger brother. So Elizabeth's like... Like, she's seen a coronation before. Sure. But, like, you know, she doesn't know what they're planning. And this is the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's not like Richard sent his servant 
you know, Elizabeth is probably a little suspicious, but what it like she doesn't really have a choice. And also it's in her best interests to try to play along with Richard and stay in his good graces because at this point everyone is saying we're going to crown Edward and, and no one has any reason to believe that he wouldn't do that because Edward is the son of Edward the fourth and he's not it's not like he's a nine-month-old baby he's he's 12 years old so everyone goes along so they send little Richard to the tower to be with his brother Edward the next day Richard Duke of Gloucester cancels the coronation announces that the marriage between Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville was not valid and that the boys are in fact not legitimate and that leaves Richard as the true king it's a stunning coup what's the like historical rationale for Richard's seeming 180 here like he you said before that he's his brother's most loyal, you know, supporter. Like he's fiercely loyal to him. And then it's like as soon as Edward dies, is it that Richard saw his moment or he just was always sort of a sycophant to Edward and not truly loyal to him? The way I read it is... This is like a very stunning reversal. It's very stunning. And the way I read it, honestly, is that I think that you can't discount the enmity between the Woodvilles and the rest of the Yorks. So But they were always going but here's to be yeah, but, heirs. but it's different when you're talking about an eighteen year old, twenty five year old man ascending to the throne who has a mind of his own compared to a relative child who's been heavily influenced by the family that you hate. And he, but you have that, but, the, but there's Richard, no reason. I guess I just feel like he's already taken the step to remove these people that he hates from the proximity of the king, and like the king obviously has no choice but to let him do this. So then, for the time being, that's the thing. Yeah, Richard realized. No, Richard realized that he had set a he sort of set a trap for himself. He took care of his enemies for the time being, but long term, Edward V wasn't going to let that go. Yeah, and what could he do? Like, what could he do? He becomes king as a 12-year-old boy. He's ruling on his own. The last thing he saw was his uncle kill his other uncle. Hey, maybe I'll take all your lands, Warwick, and banish you from the country. Hmm. Do you see what I mean? It's like a, it's short-term. It was great for Richard, but long-term, he kind of messed up. So he has, he, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I'm not, I can't tell you what was going through his head, but that's the way I read it is he kind of, dug himself into a hole and the only way to get out of it was to just keep digging yeah so richard shuts the boys in the tower and eventually they're just never seen again and after a while it just becomes accepted fact that they were dead so they're now known as the princes in the tower so the question is what happened to them and who did it yeah. So as for what happened, this is like your episode of Dateline when the guy goes, so the question is, what <laughs> happened and who did it? Tonight on Unsolved Mysteries. <laughs> Back in a moment. All right. So nobody knows what happened. It's likely that the boys were killed in the tower. That's, you know, the most likely scenario. Um, but by whom and how, nobody knows. Um, interestingly, they did discover bones and teeth 
buried under a staircase in the tower um, in the early 20th century. And they were tested in 1933, but it was very inconclusive. They just tested the bones to see if there was any evidence of foul play. They obviously couldn't have done DNA testing at the time. Um, But for some strange reason, no one's really willing to retest them. So they were interred in Westminster Abbey. And um, I mean, those could be anyone. They could be anyone. And it's weird. So many people died in the tower. It's weird. (laughs) Like um, they don't want to dig them up. Buckingham Palace has declined to order them to do it. There was a petition that people tried to circulate around to get them, you know, dug up and tested and it didn't get very many signatures. So for whatever reason, it's almost like people just at this point kind of like not knowing, I guess. Um, Who would they even test that against? Well, I mean, there are living descendants of these people of the of the York family. You know, that's how they identified Richard III's remains. Oh, well, I guess also they're siblings to Elizabeth of York. Yeah. No, I mean, there's there's enough descendants that you could you could make a, you know, more likely than not determination. Yeah. Um, Mm. But no one seems willing to do that. And, And what's interesting is that even back then, nobody had any idea. So once Lord Hastings was murdered, all of the servants that were with the boys in the tower were replaced. Mm. immediately and in july of that year um so remember they were uh, edward was supposed to be coronated in june um and by by july they had um learned of a plot against richard where edwardian supporters were plotting to release the boys from the tower they were gonna set like a section of london on fire and the distraction would be enough for them to sneak into the tower and grab the boys so it's likely that when that plot came known to Richard that that's when he ordered their murder. So the question is, if that's what happened, then who actually did it? So could it have been a servant? So Richard did have a servant named Sir James Tyrell who confessed to the murder. But this was many years later. It was kind of dubious and no nobody really believed him. I'm not really sure what the nature of the confession was, but everybody was kind of like, yeah, no, no, we're pretty sure it wasn't you. But thanks for playing. I have to tell you, Claire, with these names, I really feel like you're recounting an episode of Game of Thrones <laughs> because you have Tyrell, you have Rivers. Yeah. It's just like, I mean, obviously this is inspiration for the story, but... He took some of the names, too. <laughs> yeah. So then the other culprit that people considered was the Duke of Buckingham. And he, if you remember, was an ally of Richard who helped arrest Anthony Woodville. And he's rumored to have ordered the murder. But this is also unlikely because by October of the same year. So I think, I think what did I say? We're in 1843. No, 1483. Sorry, not 1843. Oh, my goodness. 1483. So June was when the coronation was supposed to happen. The plot against Richard to spring the boys from the tower happens in July. By October, Buckingham has turned his back on Richard. Um, He's in open rebellion and has joined the supporters of Henry Tudor. So it's unlikely that he would have murdered the boys if he was already leaning toward the Lancastrian cause. 
I put Margaret Beaufort on this list only because there is a book series by the author um, Philippa Gregory who writes yeah. a lot of historical I saw the TV novels. version. Yeah, so her, I think in the book they flesh this out a little bit more, but her take is that it had to be Margaret Beaufort because she benefited the most from their death. Um, and in the book they do it you know it's fiction so it's actually kind of done rather well where in the book um, she orders the death of the boys and then um, Elizabeth Woodville and her daughter Elizabeth of York cast a curse on the family of whoever did this will um, their line will die out and then as you know Elizabeth of York marries Henry Tudor and then um, Henry VIII had his succession issues and his line eventually did die out. So I think that that just kind of is a very fictitious take because it's true that the death of the princes soured noble support for Richard. And in hindsight, you can certainly see the value to Margaret and Henry Tudor if the boys die in the tower. But I think that would have been really hard to predict. Margaret. Yeah, I mean, at this point, there's no guarantee that margaret any like that margaret beaufort's son is even going to be successful exactly like she's championing championing henry's cause at this point but he's got at this point he has no allies killing the sons of edward the fourth don't really help anybody and honestly it helped richard the most so you know they got they were out of his way i just don't see why removing richard's biggest obstacle could have been predicted to be more of a boon for Henry Tudor at the time. So I, I think well, that's Well, you're saying really it unlikely. helped him, but it seems short-term because so here's, killing children is not... Well, here's the it's thing. It's not something people are, like, pretty eager to just sort of dismiss. So Richard III is the most likely culprit, and here's why. Because the... Like, he did it directly, or... Well, had it done. I don't think he snuck okay. into the tower and smothered them with a feather mattress, which is one of the ways they are... They think they were either smothered or perhaps strangled or um, poisoned. I mean, the method is so... It just doesn't matter. They definitely died. But the thing about Richard is that the boys were a huge threat to him. So so when this rebellion happens, a lot of people were involved to try to spring the boys from the tower. And they're a rallying point against him because the thing about Richard's coup is we talked about how it was really stunning. But it was sort of like... I would equate it to the election of Donald Trump. It happened, but a lot of people were left standing around. They couldn't believe that it happened. Like, they were just kind of like, wait, what? And, you know, Richard made all these outlandish claims. Remember, he's he's claiming that Elizabeth and Edward were not properly married he's calling their children bastards which as you talked in the episode about elizabeth woodville that really is very unlikely to have been the case because they had ample opportunity to remedy the situation he's spreading propaganda that edward isn't even a legitimate child of his father and and his claim is just so crazy and he literally pushed a 12 year old boy off the throne that everyone's really uneasy about it and so from the very beginning he's struggling to hold on to power because he's just hasn't how old is richard at this point um you know i meant to look that up i would say he's relatively young maybe in his 30s he's because can we he was edward's youngest brother 
Can we ignore the part in the fictional telling where he and Elizabeth Woodville are involved? Well, I will talk about that, but not Elizabeth Woodville. Elizabeth. Yeah, I don't think that they were involved romantically. No. No. Um, but we'll we'll touch on that a little bit. But the bottom line is like, Richard's he Richard's her brothers. Right, Richard's seizing of power was so ruthless and cunning that everyone's kind of looking at him like oh crap and the having his brother's heirs easily accessible would make it much more difficult to hold on to power so bottom line is it's very very likely that richard killed the boys but that's what makes this mystery so compelling right is that they just disappeared into the tower of london which is itself i will tell you from watching that um documentary i just watched an imposing thousand-year-old structure. I mean, it was built by William the Conqueror to intimidate the people of London. So, yeah, it's, well, it's funny. We'll talk about it. We're going to go, but like, I mean, it is on our itinerary, but it's funny because when you look at it with modern eyes, you're like, what? Right. But, but in <laughs> medieval, not that big. In medieval times, I mean, he yeah, no, absolutely. took these boys, they went in, they never came out. Right. And to this day, nobody knows what happened to them. So that's why it's so compelling. And the nobles, the nobles are really unhappy about this. So enter Henry Tudor stage left. That is my hey Shakespeare, Shakespeare reference. So as Does a, he enter stage left? I have no or? idea, but I just, you know, threw in a stage direction to <laughs> it's a little nod to Shakespeare. So that's so actually a side note. The one thing about the one play, Richard III, that I, I know, you know, the thing is we talked about this before. Shakespeare was writing during the time of the Tudors and his, you know, edict was to write plays that benefited the House of Tudor. And so all of this definitely took a Lancastrian slant but I will say that the play Richard III when I read about what he actually did it's like Shakespeare didn't have to make anything up (laughs) like it's just like this is so Shakespearean well it's so funny that you say that his edict was to give it a Lancastrian bent and then when you read the history of it it's to me so clear that the Yorks are in the right (laughs) yeah except for this part this part is definitely favors the tutors um no it favors the tutors but i mean like the actual history of it like where the lancasters um, oh stole the throne stole yeah. the crown yeah. in the first place and then the two the yorks finally get it back and then like internal strife and all of this but like yeah i mean richard doesn't never forget that richard is a york but if he had left edward v on the throne there would not have been the house of tudor most likely no, absolutely. He, he Richard was supposed to perform the role of John of Gaunt um, for Henry the Sixth. If you were not John of Gaunt, sorry. Um, well, yeah, John of Gaunt for Richard too. So, if you remember, John of Gaunt was the younger brother of Edward the Black Prince, and Richard too was his was Edward the Black Prince's son. And everybody thought John of Gaunt was going to try to steal the throne from Richard II. But he never did. He just mm-hmm. he just supported him. Um, that's what Richard was supposed to do. And he just couldn't do it. So it opens the door for Henry Tudor. So yeah, this is one of those moments where the British monarchy takes a hard turn well, in any direction but i mean like it's not just it's like straight line straight line straight line oh yes it's a squiggle 
So, yeah. um, as we just talked about, Richard has blatantly stolen the throne, and he doesn't even have any pretense to hide around. Like Edward, Edward V was an innocent boy. It wasn't like Henry the Sixth, who had gone mad, um, or you know, Richard the Second, who was incredibly corrupt, or um, you know, even when Henry Bolingbroke took the throne from Richard he didn't give it to Richard's son because his son was a nine-month-old baby there's none of that it's just Richard saying yeah I don't want to so (laughs) the nobles are pretty uneasy about this and so remember Elizabeth Woodville had a huge family so there's a lot of remaining Woodvilles out there believe it or not and their allies are known as like the Edwardians so these are all a lot of the nobles who's are kind of coming out on the losing end of this because they aren't staunchly supporting Richard. And you have Lancastrians who've all been still supporting Henry Tudor hiding in Brittany because Henry VI is dead. So they all kind of come together and unite against Richard. Um, And this might be a good time to remind anyone who listened to the Elizabeth Woodville podcast that the Woodvilles were originally Lancastrian supporters. mm -hmm. So as a family, they're so just coming just full circle. Reverting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they invite Henry Tudor back to England. And at first, it was to help Edward V reclaim his throne. So when Edward V was thought to still be alive, you know, they just looked at him as like an ally. Okay, we can we can use these Lancastrian supporters against Richard. And, and his mother at the time was actively promoting him amongst the nobles for both that cause and then later when Edward V was pretty much accepted to be dead as an alternative to Richard and they're like okay yeah you know what like that sounds great so he's crowned by rebels while he's in Brittany so he starts styling himself the king of England and at that time he also swore an oath that he would marry Elizabeth of York so as you can see the Woodvilles are on board with that and he sets sail for England and he decides I'm gonna get rid of Richard but it doesn't go so well. He gets hit by bad storms. All of his ships crash except for like two of them. He's blown back to Normandy. And when he's about to land in England, um, he can tell he sends like a rowboat to shore and they're told like they're supporters, but then it becomes clear that they're not. So he's, you know, it's a trap set by Richard's supporters. So he's like, okay, no, never mind. And he just sails back to Brittany and says, better luck next time. So, and when I'm talking about this time period, we're talking about a really short span of time. We're talking about, like, months here. Um, While all of this is happening, Richard is just actively accusing everybody of treason. Anybody that's not supporting him, he's incredibly paranoid, is out to get him. And he's determined to stamp out anyone who supported his brother Edward and Edward's children. Um... This is making the nobles rightfully concerned because they're seeing their friends lose their titles and their lands left and right. So they had turned to Henry out of necessity. I mean, let's just remind everybody that Henry Tudor is a nobody. Um, But to their mind, he's better than Richard. So let's talk about Henry's claim a little bit. So Henry is the son of Margaret Beaufort, as we talked about, was descended from the Beaufort line that goes back up to John of Gaunt and up to Edward III. So he has a very, very, very tangential claim through his mother. His father 
was the half brother of Henry the Sixth, but they share a mother, so he doesn't have any claim to the royal lineage um, through his father. All that does is give him the Lancastrian bona fides. So in a normal world, Henry Tudor would barely rank amongst the nobles, let alone be anybody that they would consider suitable to sit on the throne of England. But Richard has alienated everyone. And he's, I mean, he's the only one left. There's no Yorks left. All the male York heirs have been killed. Who do you turn to, you know? And you remember, you have Margaret Beaufort in the background whispering in all of their ears, don't forget about my son. He's a great, mm. he's young, he's powerful. He can rule this country. So the irony here is that Richard really did dig his own grave because the actual business of ruling Richard was very good at so he wanted to be a just and fair ruler um he's a lot like his father in looks and personality so his father was tall and dark and kind of powerfully built Richard shares those dark looks although he's not powerfully built he's not tall like his brothers and he he did suffer they think from scoliosis so that hunchback picture that we think of was he probably was very stooped over um, I think Claire. I think someone's trying to register his opinion of Richard. Oh, can you hear my dog? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. I'm just. Um, yeah. <laughs> agreed. I agree with Boo. He's yeah, bad. Not Richard the Third. <laughs> we don't like him. Um. So, and Richard also apparently was the most like his father in personality. So, if we remember, Richard the Third, Duke of York, when he was up against Henry the Sixth, was, you know very charismatic very shrewd very smart and Richard is all of those things he's an able military commander Um, he cut his teeth fighting for his brother Edward and and he's trying to institute good reforms during his role so he's he really is he has an idea in his head of what makes a good ruler and he's not distracted by women or gambling or drinks like Edward was in the later years of his life he's he's just determined to be a good king um his downfall is his absolute paranoia and some bad luck so I talked about the fact that he was accusing all the nobles of treason. So what he did was he just packed his court with northerners, people that he knew were loyal to him. But this did nothing to unify the country because you're starting to see a north and south divide. You've got the York territories in the north. They're all loyal to Richard. But everyone else is like, what the hell's going on? Like this guy stole the throne. Now he's trying to take our lands, accuse us all of treason. We're about to lose our heads. This they have they have no reason to defend him so he just alienated and drove away everyone else that's problem number one problem number two is that in 1484 his son edward of middleham died at the age of 10 um Hmm. this is that might be called karma maybe yeah it's also you know not unusual at the time um yeah but it's really bad luck because while Richard had several bastards, um, this is his only heir. This is his only child with Anne Neville. It's not even like they have some girls maybe they could fall back on. They don't have any more kids. This makes for Richard 
capturing Henry Tudor has become a priority because now he's got a succession problem. And as we know, that is never a recipe for success. So, well, here's a question. Mm -hmm. Richard very well could have, if he wants to further this fictional claim of the boys being Edward's bastards, he could have been like, but out of the magnanimity, whatever. I'm so mag- so generous. The generosity. I'm going to stop trying to say the other word. Out of the generosity of his heart, I'll adopt him as my son and he can be my heir. But he's already killed and him. And then Richard still gets to rule. And then, no, I know, but I'm saying why not do this before that? Because he like, had a son. Richard he didn't need to adopt him. I guess. His son died the year after he killed Edward V and his brother. Okay. So... You know, Richard's done all the dirty work and now he's trying to be a king. And then, oops, my son died. Crap. What do I do now? Run out of men. Run out of men. And Henry Tudor is being actively supported as my replacement. And it didn't help that the French were supporting Henry. Uh, This was mostly to mess with Richard. Um, The French never really liked the Yorks all that much. Um... You know, if you remember, Margaret of Anjou was French, and but isn't Henry descended from a maternal, like his maternal claim is French, isn't it? His maternal claim goes back to Edward the Third. No, for, through his mother, but through his father. Oh his, yes, that Catherine claim of goes through was his father. Yeah. was his grandmother. Uh, yeah, I don't know if the French cared about that because remember they don't really care about women. Um, yeah, it's more the fact that like they just really didn't care for the Yorks. Um, and I think they just anything to mess with whoever was sitting on the throne of England. So the French are at this point harboring Henry Tudor. Um, and he's, you know, referring to himself as the king of England and they're all going along with it. So Richard has to figure out a way to neutralize Henry. So he knows that Henry has already promised to marry Elizabeth of York. So he goes to Elizabeth Woodville and he says, let's make amends. I'll bring the girls to court. I'll make them good marriages. I'll support your family. Let's just put it all behind us. And now we talked about this in our Elizabeth Woodville episode. It's not really clear what Elizabeth was thinking, but she did agree to this. I think as you, she was a pragmatist. She was pra- very pragmatic. And I think the one thing she was always doing was playing however many sides she could. Because this is a woman who had fled to sanctuary many times. Um, her fortunes had fallen and risen several times. I think she's kind of like, all right, look, if this Henry Tudor thing doesn't work out, at least my girls can make good matches and we won't be living in poverty for the rest of our days. So around the same time as the York, it's, she sends her two oldest girls. So around the time that um, the oldest York girls go to court, the rumors begin to swirl that Richard is going to set aside his wife, Anne Neville, and marry Elizabeth of York. And you can kind of see the appeal of this. It would have strengthened his claim because, um, you know, if he marries the daughter of Edward of York, maybe people will forget that he murdered his son and stole his throne. Um, and Anne Neville died in 1485, so he was freed to marry. 
Except this is like totally gross. Even for the time, this is a bridge too far because we're talking about uncle and niece. Like, yeah, that would be one hell of a papal dispensation. Richard was basically told by his advisors, "We don't know if this rumor came from you. If you're seriously considering this, but whatever you do, don't. You cannot do this. This is just too disgusting." Like, I mean, for the Pope would never the, and yeah. they wouldn't marry at that time without a papal dispensation. Right. So when you talked about the Ew. fact that, like, were they romantically <laughs> so involved? Gross. I have a hard time believing that somebody would be romantically involved with their uncle who murdered their brother. I just have a hard time believing that. Um, yeah. But, you know, unless there's some kind of weird Stockholm thing happening. I don't know. I mean, you know, the thing about Elizabeth of York is that nobody, nobody knows that much about her internal. I will say in the TV version sequel to this Philippa Gregory story called The White Princess, um, Elizabeth of York, by the way, is played by Jodie Comer, who is the villain in uh, Killing Eve. But... Yeah. Uh, oh, and Margaret Beaufort is played by the woman who played Cat Stark on Game of Thrones, if you want to call pull that full circle. But um, they definitely take the, the plot line in that, that Elizabeth and Richard were romantically involved. Yeah. Because she's, like, really upset that he died. I don't buy it. Yeah. I don't buy it. It makes for a good novel, I yeah. guess, but... It doesn't... No, I mean, no, but it's, I guess, a good soap opera, yeah. but it's disgusting. So Richard, in any case, is forced to publicly deny this rumor because everyone's kind of... The people that are still supporting him are like, yeah, I don't know if we can support that. Um, Henry Tudor hears this rumor, and he's not pleased. He's like, that's my future bride. And, and oh, by the way, that's gross. Well, and if there's any truth to it, then, you know, depending on timing, his own paternity could be questioned. Right. So it's, it's, it's not a good idea. So Henry, Henry Tudor is like, this is the final straw. Now is the time to strike Richard. Like, if he's this desperate, let's go. So Henry decides to set sail for Wales. And he's intending to march into England that way. So he's basically going through the back door. And it's kind of poetic that, you know, his father was a Welshman and he's going to go steal his crown by going through his home country, if you will. And he brings with him an army of Frenchmen, Welshmen, English exiles, and Scots. So... Always happy to march against oh, the English. Always happy to march against the English. But, you know, it's kind of a ragtag group. And it's not a huge force. Um, Richard, on the other hand, is like, all right, come get me. He welcomes the fight because from his perspective, Henry doesn't have any allies. Richard has a huge army. He's got the York Holdings to recruit men from. You know, he can build a huge army. And all the nobles are afraid of him. So nobody's really siding with Henry. Um, Henry's only real hope is Thomas Stanley and his brother William. And that's because Henry's mother, Margaret Beaufort, is married to Thomas Stanley. Even though Stanley is an avowed Yorkist, he thinks he can win 
Stanley to his side. And Stanley is very shrewd. He's not committed to Henry, but he's also not committed to Richard. He's kind of helping Henry behind the scenes, like he's sort of smoothing his way into England, but he's not openly marching with him. He's kind of assuring Richard that he's on his side. He's, he's definitely playing both sides. But it was Well, it sounds like he's like, okay, let's see how Richard shakes out, but let's come up with a plan B just in case. Right. And it was enough to get Henry into England and start building support on his own. So as Henry makes his way through England, he does start building support. Because remember, Richard really only has the north, but all of these disaffected nobles. And it's really more the gentry class. So we've talked about before about how you have like the nobles who are part of the aristocracy if you will and then below that you have the landed gentry and these are the people that are supporting henry but remember as i said richard also has a huge army so it's inevitable that the two armies are going to meet and here's where remember i've talked about how richard was like a really shrewd military commander Mm -hmm. i'm not sure what happened but he basically played it all wrong so the two armies meet at bosworth i also saw it called market bosworth but um i thought it was bosworth that's what it became known as but they're in this area of bosworth and richard could see henry's army approaching and henry just attacked immediately so they attack in the early morning fast with speed they just go for it uh the stanleys are with henry but they're not with his arm they hung back a little bit so they the stanleys show up too but they're just kind of watching the battle like we're gonna see which way the wind blows before we decide which fight we're standing on or sorry which side we're standing on go go yeah 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 so richard like knows they're around so i actually read that he had william stanley's son as a hostage and he told William Stanley, if you know, if you don't fight for me, I'm killing your son. And apparently he did eventually give the order to do that. But because the battle was so pitched and too much was going on, it never actually like made it to the person who was supposed to kill him. Lucky guy. Yeah. So um, that didn't really work out for Richard, though, because what happened is that Stanley's are hanging back and Henry is charging forward. And Richard is like pissed and he sees Henry with his like little guard around him. And he's like, I'm Richard the third. I'm a battle hardened warrior. I'm going to end this once and for all. So he wins. He goes right for Henry and charges through his men, kills his standard bearer, which was actually a really big deal. So this could have actually gone badly for Henry because, you know, the standard bearer is the guy who's waving the flag. And if the flag goes down, presumably that means the king went down too so for some reason the army was able to see henry and they didn't they realized he wasn't dead and that's when the stanleys charged in with three thousand fresh soldiers because william stanley thinks his son is dead so he's like what do i have to lose and they see that henry is you know being attacked and so they just charge in three thousand fresh soldiers turns the tide of the battle but at that point then they've trapped richard between two armies their forces yep. and henry's yep. got it so Clever. richard is shot in the head it wasn't clear to me if this was with an arrow or with a bullet because they did have handguns wait really uh, i was gonna say i assume it was an arrow <laughs> yeah apparently they did have handguns now i could not tell you 
what they how yeah. effective yeah. they were <laughs> um then he's stabbed through the head then mm. he's hit very hard in the back of the head which what was probably like a halberd which i think is like a really big sword um that was probably what killed him but he's basically hacked to death on the battlefield and so when we were talking about at the beginning of this we were going to talk about kings who lost their heads he doesn't quite lose his head but he did lose his crown his helmet with his crown fell off um he wore it into battle so stanley is able to pick it up and crown henry right there on the field and uh also gross yeah so thus, with the crowning of Henry on the field, thus ends the Battle of Bosworth, the reign of Richard III, and the Wars of the Roses, for the most part. For the most part. And then we're launched into the Tudor Age. Yes. Um, okay, this is all so dramatic. Very dramatic. <laughs> like, what an end to this story. And also, we've got... Well, I was going to say three, but I suppose really we have two dead kings. Yep. So Edward V and then Richard. Um, you know, they did finally find his body, they think. Yeah, under like a dumpster in a parking lot or something. Yeah. Was, well, not the body wasn't like no, under the but dumpster. it was like in a parking <laughs> it's like lot. like buried where, underground. Yeah. yeah, but it was under a parking lot. Yeah. They found what they think is probably the bones of yeah. Richard the Third, yeah. because he was buried on the field, yeah. and his wounds and were. No consistent. one was ever really sure, like where exactly Bosworth was, right. and his wounds were consistent. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because, like, like you say, it's so dramatic, and it's just. I think in hindsight, you can see like we're talking about maybe two years here, and it was yeah. just a losing battle from the very beginning, like as. You know, he he just every other king we talked about so far that stole the throne from someone else at least had a pretext for doing so. You know, they had a good reason. You could say, well, the king's lost his mind. He surely he cannot be ruling or he's running this country into the ground. Um, I mean, remember Richard Duke of York when he went up against Henry VI, he just kept saying, "I, I don't want your throne. I just want you to stop doing what you're doing and, you know, give me a seat on your council like I should have. And which is kind of Richard's original motivation as well. And it's so interesting how they're never. But he already had it. There. He already had it. That's the problem is like Richard didn't even have the pretext well, not of not having the power he should have. He had what he was supposed to have. No, but I mean, like, that's it. Like, they're never content to just stop right there. It's like the throne just starts to look so compelling. I mean, you know, it's so funny. I think some of Shakespeare's most famous works or tragedies, I guess, come out of this. And I I, I know that it's like a, he's obviously writing under royal prerogative for Elizabeth, you know, telling the story of her ancestors. But um, I would also imagine that this story really captured his imagination in a way because it is so dramatic and so... It's like it was, I mean, we were talking about this. I mean, this, the ending of the story especially, I think, takes really dramatic swerves. But even the back and forth of Henry VI and Edward, it's it's as if it was drama written for yeah. TV, right? Yeah. You know, but it is it is real life and it's so crazy. And, you know, the unfortunate could have been that people die young or from illness or infection or 
news doesn't reach people in time. Like it's, it, it is so much also, I think, a story of its time. Um, well, I mean, you can't get away with murdering people this way anymore, but also I think so much hinged on the fact that, you know, civilization is just very limited. <laughs> and the thing is, is that like the bottom line is that really all these people just thought I can do it better. I don't even know if that it's necessarily like they they had this lust for power. I think it was just like they think I could do this better. I should be doing this. And because, um, you know, I I didn't really mention this, but by the end of Edward IV's reign, Richard was kind of fed up with him. He didn't appre- approve of the way he was living his life. He didn't like all the influence that he had given to his in-laws. And so I, I do think that was part of it where he died and Richard was like, okay, we can either let his kid take over or I can do better. Um, but, you know, he just kind of forgot, like, that wasn't really his place. And, and you know, they had already just done this. And Edward had worked so hard to kind of right the ship. And then Richard comes sailing in and says just kidding i'm i'm starting the wars up again so i really think that part of it was the nobles were just like we don't want to do this again like let's just sit put somebody on the throne who has a reasonable claim and call it a day yeah you would think there'd be some sort of fatigue of like the constant cooing but i guess not yeah (laughs) no and what's funny is that they um there were a couple of like small rebellions during the early years of Henry the Seventh's reign, and that's why you see um, Henry the Eighth when he was still Prince Henry be named Duke of York. That's where the tradition of the second son becoming Duke of York came from, because Henry, as a Lancastrian, wanted to make sure that no one could claim the York side again. So he just brought it all into the family. So. Maybe you mentioned this before, and maybe I'm forgetting, but Lancaster is still the remit of the monarch? Yep. So the monarch to this day is still the Duke of Lancaster. and that Got it. You did yep, say that. And that That's comes right. from Henry Bolingbroke when he took the throne. Yeah. So York and Lancaster are both under the crown, which, which is the Tudor Rose, is the merging of the two. Yeah. So... So we are now going to go to where this sort of comes to its culmination, I think. Oh, yeah? Where's that? Well, so you have this... We were talking about these swerves of history, right? And I think you end up here with Henry Tudor on the throne. You've got the Tudor era. and But the Tudors are very short-lived, historically speaking. So, you know, you you mentioned jokingly this fictional curse on the Tudor family, but for all intents and purposes, we have Henry VII, Henry VIII, um, and Elizabeth I. I mean, we've got two short-lived monarchs in between, but neither of them really rules for very long. And then Elizabeth is the last Tudor. So then the crown goes to Scotland, essentially, and then we have Charles I. And we're going to actually talk about a king who did lose his head. Well, we had to get there eventually, didn't we? <laughs> we did eventually have to get there. But I, I do think that I, it's, it's a little bit meandering, but I do think that there's a line here from this point to 
an England under Charles I that is very fed up and unsure what they want the role of the monarch to be. And I think that this might contribute a little bit to it because this is a this is an era of a lot of uncertainty and constant changing of crowns and different people taking power. And I would imagine for Parliament and some of the other nobles in power, another couple hundred years, this gets a little tiring. Yeah, and I think you, it definitely degrades the mystique of the monarchy a lot. Like, you know oh, he's ordained by God, but wow, we sure did have a period where they seemed pretty human. You know, we could just get rid of them if we didn't like them. Absolutely. So, not to give too much away on that, but we are going to be talking about Charles I next time. Woohoo! We're going into the 17th century. 18th century. 17th century. 18th. 18th? What, what year did he die? I haven't gotten to that part yet. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we're talking about... Oh, I think you're right. I think it's... The end of yeah, the 1600s. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. Elizabeth was living in the 15th, the 16th century into the very early right. years right. of 17th. And then we've got James the first after Who was her. Charles's and then Charles' grandfather? Father. Father. Oh, really? Was it? Interesting. Mm -hmm. I always thought there was another one in between. Well, that will be very interesting. And let's not forget James the first son of Mary, Queen of Scots. Right, right. Listen to our episode Mm -hmm. on that, too, if you want to. Um, Mm -hmm. As always, let us know your thoughts. I did see we have some more iTunes reviews. So if you're reviewing us on iTunes, thank you for that. Um, You know, continue to comment on our Instagram. Um, I love when we post that we have episodes and people say they're really excited and stuff like that. So thank you for listening and yes thank you because we're really excited and that's what keeps us going through the the research phase. right right <laughs> yeah i read two books for you guys um okay so <laughs> until next time until then and claire is gonna work on her family tree yes i am it'll be up eventually i'm sure one of you is breath- breathlessly awaiting right. it right. <laughs> right. bye monarchast is produced by me ali and me claire And our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.